As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Why don't we move on to what Dr. Larian cares about? Mohammed, we've got to sit on crude. The idea that crude has essentially collapsed into a bear market, down more than 20% from the September highs. We've spent this week talking about soft landing hopes and dreams. Do we have to start thinking about an economic downturn in the not-too-distant future? Well, some of them, some people are talking about this. I mean, to see oil prices down more than 20% from the highs at the time that there's a conflict going on in the Middle East is quite astounding. And that's feeding into the soft landing. And we're going to talk a lot about this, but the market has now fully embraced, not just that the Fed has finished its hiking cycle, which I think is correct, but that we're going to see deeper and deeper cuts next year without a recession. And that's the critical assumption that's now built in across markets. I want to get the money question out of the way right away. A CEO of a major 2 million employee company in America called Walmart yesterday brought up the D word, deflation, seared into the fabric of Cambridge, Oxford, and the London School of Economics. It's a study of British deflation of the 30s and 40s. America's never faced that, have they? They haven't, and we've had Japan recently. And the problem with deflation is it discourages people from buying today. However, I want to stress, U.S. is deflation in certain products, food being the primary example, and that's why Walmart really cited it. We don't have general deflation, and I doubt we're going to have general deflation. I mean, I I look at the general deflation question, and it is a vector of disinflation in place. Clearly, we see that. What is your optimism of getting back to John Williams 2.0% or Richard Claret is 2.x%? I think Richard is, is, is more likely to be right than John. I think we're going to get stuck in the high twos, and the Fed is going to have to make a very difficult decision. Does it live with inflation higher than target because the target itself is too low, or alternatively, does it acknowledge um, that 2% is the right target and then crushes the economy? I think that's the choice the Fed is going to have to make. What's your best guess right now? I think it's going to go for the former. I think the Fed will understand that pressing 2% inflation in a world where there's insufficient structural supply is not the right thing to do. So where do you think it leaves this bond market? Let's go through the scores right now. We've got a two-year at the moment at about 480, a 10-year at about 440. Think about where we've been in the last month or so, Mohammed. We've had a two-year pushing 525, highs that are cycled, 10-year through 5%, highs that are cycle. How are you thinking about what we come back down to, bearing in mind what we're pricing for rate cuts next year? 
I think we've come down too far, to tell you the truth. I understand why some people think that we're going further. But if you look at the inflation dynamics, that's harder to get unless we go into a recession. If we go into a recession, then the stock market is mispriced. So you can't have both at the same time. Has something changed? I think this is what it goes back to. Has something changed post-pandemic that means we don't go back to the pre-pandemic world? That debate, I think, is still ongoing, Mohammed. Where'd you come down on it? I think the pre-pandemic world was exceptional. It was a world of QE, it was a world of insufficient aggregate demand, and when you have insufficient aggregate demand, you can push into the economy as much liquidity as you want because you won't get inflation. That world is gone. We're in a world now of inflexible supply, and that's a very different world. Something to talk about over the two hours with you, Dr. Alarian, is growth economics. I've been telling a lot of people to remind themselves of a guy named Solo at MIT in 1956, and the near religious experience of trusting in growth. Can you state that we have a new American growth economics off what some people are indicating is improved productivity, improved efficiency? So, you know, I listen carefully to our friend Mike Spence, the Nobel Prize winner, because he spent so much of his career studying growth. Studying with John Hicks. I mean, the majesty of that alone. And he's incredible, and his insights are really valuable. And his bottom line is that most countries have to evolve to a new growth model. The U.S. is the most advanced in that evolution. I think the three important pieces of legislation that the administration passed last year were critical in that perspective. So if you look around the world, whether it is the U.S., Europe, or China, all three have the challenge Mm -hmm. of evolving the growth model, and only the U.S. is doing it seriously right now. Are we too gloomy? Um, are we too, no, Lisa isn't here, so we're not too gloomy. <laughs> okay. No, I think we recognize that the world is evolving. This is a different global economy. This is a different domestic economy, and policies have to evolve accordingly. What worries me, and I think the concern of a lot of people listening to this conversation on going at home, is you just have to go back 48 hours, and we're talking about disinflation, soft landing hopes and dreams. And then 24 hours, 48 hours later, you look to Burberry, a collapse in luxury. You look to Walmart, a warning about the US consumer. You look to crude, entering a bear market. And all of a sudden, we're talking about a slowdown and maybe even recession. Mohammed, the bond market's stuck between all of this. We're seeing double-digit moves day after day in either direction. You've written about this extensively in the last few months, about a bond market that's lost its anchors. Is an economic slowdown sufficient to regain some stability in fixed income, in Treasury specifically? No. I mean, I was really struck yesterday, I was watching you, when you said, guess what? We had the same level of the 10-year as we were a week ago. And my reaction is, is, how could that be? So I looked it up, and you were right. Now, most people feel that this week is very different from last week because of the inflation print that we've had. We still lack one of the three anchors. You either need an economic anchor or a policy anchor or a technical anchor to the bond market. And we've lost all three. So these moves are going to continue. The thing that has really impressed me is that nothing has broken. If you had told me a year ago, we're going to see this incredible volatility in the most important market in the world. It's the benchmark for so much else. And yet nothing will break. I would have said that's impossible. So the resilience of of the functioning of the market has really impressed me. The the financial system, and of course, we had the shock in the United Kingdom off a derivative structure in the pension plans. But to lead to this and measured in standard deviations, which is how fancy people like Alarian think, we had a six, seven, eight standard deviation end of the great moderation. There's a hope and prayer we get back to that trend line. That's in years. How many years do you think we heal this great bond debacle? 
I think it's going to take time. Remember, we've had 10 exceptional years where the bond market was distorted. Some would say back to Volcker. We've had, you know, 30 exceptional years. But the, the shift to an artificially low interest rate and ample and predictable injections of liquidity fundamentally changed the bond market. And that is going to take time to recover from. Did you and Bill Gross get a free ride because you were within the great moderation? Oh. Was that such a structural I'm joy? not sure it felt like a free ride no, at the time, No, it didn't man. feel like a free ride. But did PIMCO, <laughs> when you build it, you invented it with Bill, was it, was it easier because you had the great moderation? Oh, 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 just, just think of investors. Investors care about three things. Returns volatility and correlations. And we went through a period that because liquidity was being injected in, into the economy over and over again, mm -hmm. we got high returns, we got virtually no volatility, and the correlations broke down, but in your favor. You made money on your risky assets and you made money on your risk-free assets at the same time. That was a great time. We took it to be normal, but it was truly exceptional. And we're going back to a world that I think is more like what we had before the global financial crisis. It's going to be so hard to shake this, Mohammed, because we've got a whole generation, in fact, a couple of generations conditioned by two major shocks, the financial crisis and the pandemic. And we know how the Fed responds to major shocks. What we've all forgotten is how it responds to just normal economic downturns and upside pressure on inflation. How do we start to get into that all over again? Yeah, and this is where Fed credibility and better communication is better. John, it's, it's really striking that the market is willing to take on the Fed on a price that the Fed controls. The Fed totally controls the policy rate, and yet the market does not believe what the Fed is, is, is telling us. And it is really striking because we have got to restore Fed credibility. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we're going to continue with this enormous volatility. Your thoughts on what's percolating into the end of the year and into Q1 2024. Are there shadows in private equity? Are there shadows in the new non-traditional finance? Yeah, so one thing that I don't think is priced in enough is that when you move from the banking system to the non-banks, you change the lags in the system. So you see this with commercial real estate. Everybody recognizes that the refinancing of a trillion plus of assets is going to be tricky. But because it's over time, we don't worry about it. Everybody recognizes there's a maturity wall in the corporates out there. But because it's over time, we don't worry about it. If it were all within the banking system, we would have worried about it really quickly. Mm -hmm. So the move from the banks to the non-banks has, has extended this, this and this time. is a Michael Spence issue. The regulatory lag here is tangible. This is that uncomfortable calm, though, as well, just to borrow that phrase from a long time ago from the Bank of International Settlements. This maturity wall is out there in 2025, and there's just this feeling, Mohammed, that we don't have to think about it. But at some point, we have to start thinking about it, don't we? Right, but you know what? You enjoy the journey before you get to a destination. <laughs> oh, here we go. And you want to give us some good news, bad news? Bramos not here, please. No, no, I totally understand, you know, because momentum is really important, and you want to be exposed to this market. And I think most people have much more of a tactical mindset than they do of a strategic or structural mindset. And investment has become very tactical. Mohammed, setting the tone. It's great to have you with us, by the way. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. 
Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It is without question through the pandemic and literally over the last five years, she has had a greater influence on the debate of our American economics than anyone out there out of Sacramento, Cambridge, and a tour of duty at the very liberal New School of Social Research. Stephanie Kelton joins us now from Stony Brook University. The book is The Deficit Myth, and the three letters are MMT. Professor, honored to have you on Bloomberg Surveillance. Are we unraveled, Stephanie, the worry here of the annual interest expense, the return of a real interest rate? Are we, are we unraveling as we roll into 2024? No. I mean, we are. the Fed is effectively, in a sense, putting fiscal policy, a big part of the federal government's budget, on autopilot. And it's really tantamount to running you know, a pretty regressive uh, fiscal stimulus. That's what the rate hikes are actually doing. If we don't like it, Tom, there's a pretty easy way out of it, uh, which is to say if the rate hikes are pushing up the amount of money the federal government is spending to service the debt, interest expenditure up by hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars over time, remittances from the Fed to the Treasury have collapsed. All of this is adding to the deficit, which triggers more issuance of Treasuries, which puts you in what is essentially just a cycle right. now of, of higher rates, higher deficits, higher debt, and it will continue for as long as the Federal Reserve holds in this position. With a deficit, the debt and the deficit is from the new school, Heilbronner and Bernstein classically talked about years ago. But the arch MMT criticism is you're handing monetary decision-making from the acuity and date-driven data dependency of a Fed over to the legislative branch. Can we trust the legislative branch to prosecute MMT given where we are right now? Well, okay, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Hal Brunner. He was a, a professor of mine when I was there and a really terrifically bright uh, person. Um, Tom, MMT is a description of the monetary system that we have today. It is a floating exchange rate fiat currency. Love it or hate it, it's what we have. MMT describes the monetary system that we have and the mechanics of government finance. It's not a policy proposal. It doesn't propose 
changing anything. It's describing how things already work. So think about what Congress did with the onset of the pandemic, drafting first the CARES Act, that $2.2 trillion, and then the big omnibus bill, a $900 billion package. And then the Democrats came in and did their $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act. All of that was deficit spending. We didn't uh, give Congress any new permission to do anything. We just described how it all works. And it helps to understand why Congress was able to muster that kind of fiscal firepower when so many economists had previously said that when the next crisis came, we would be unable to act. People like Larry Summers said, because of the Republican tax cuts in 2017, that we would be living on a shoestring for decades to come. Those were his words, that we wouldn't have the ability to spend money because of the deficits, because of the debt. That was wrong. Congress has the power of the purse. MMT recognizes that, and MMT says, listen, this is an extraordinary power they have. They need to use it responsibly. And that means thinking before you move forward with bold spending programs about the inflation risk that's associated with those spending proposals. And that's the piece that was missing. The one thing you didn't mention in my you know, uh, my tour of uh, going through my education and so forth was the time I spent in the U.S. Senate as the chief economist for the Democrats. And I'll just say very quickly and I'll, I'll stop that when I was in the Senate, my great frustration was being surrounded by members of the Senate on both the Republican and the Democratic side who were drafting bills, trillion dollars of infrastructure, talking about Medicare for all and all these other things without ever mentioning inflation risk. I couldn't believe it. So MMT would have us do things very differently when it comes to mm -hmm. the way we approach the federal budgeting process. It's inflation right. that you have to watch for. Uh, Stephanie, it's Mike McKee. Um, if wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. The idea that Congress is going to think about anything before they start passing bills is probably not going to happen. So I'm wondering, after all this, uh, is there a limit in the sense that uh, at some point we aren't going to be able to respond fiscally uh, for one reason or uh, another to some sort of crisis because all the money is going into debt payment instead of uh, instead of going into additional spending and and the way we're set up now we got to pay those bills okay so two things i'll say one i've been hearing this my entire life you'll remember that Chairman Volcker had interest rates up pretty high. And meanwhile, you know, Ronald Reagan did two massive tax mm -hmm. cuts and massively built up the, the military. So, again, if Congress has the will to right. pass legislation, the votes are there, the money is there. And I'll just say, I don't think it's right to say, actually, that we can't trust Congress to rein it in. Remember, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act was Congress's uh, effort to say, listen, we don't want to continue passing legislation given the inflationary environment, so we want to get revenues up. We want to control costs. We're going to well, negotiate prescription drug prices. That was all... Congress taking, you know, careful steps, I think. Are you, are you would you suggest, Stephanie, whether it's a Republican or Democratic two houses, that we can have budget responsibility? Do you see displayed budget responsibility in the modern Congress and Senate? 
Well, Tom, what I'm saying is that if we were doing things the way I'd like to see them done, instead of handing proposed spending bills to, let's say, the Congressional Budget Office and saying, give me feedback on this legislation I have drafted. Tell me if it's going to increase the deficit. Tell me whether it adds to the debt. I don't think that is the most important feedback. I think it would be much better to have CBO and or other agencies evaluate proposed legislation on the basis of inflation risk, but we don't do it that way. Right. So I think that that would uh, put us much closer to having a Congress that operates with fiscal responsibility, i.e. inflation risk, at the heart of what it's okay. doing. Can you and say a critic of yours, John Cochran, the great conservative economist, can you and John Cochran get on the same page and say we need a Simpson-Bowles redux where in the initiation of that panel we actually demand that we get something done? No. Uh, so sorry, but no is the answer to the question. You would have to first convince me that there is some sort of looming crisis that necessitates the formulation of a fiscal commission. And I don't believe that we are facing that kind of crisis. Inflation is coming down. So if, if you approach things the way I do, which is to say, you know, are we at risk? Is the budget posing mm -hmm. an inflation problem? Then let's get at it and let's figure out what adjustments need to be made to ensure that we aren't putting ourselves at All risk right. of Trenched inflation well above the Fed's target. I don't think that's the future we're facing. Fascinating and controversial. Professor Kelton, thank you so much. Stephanie Kelton, I can't say enough about how refreshing to any and all her book, The Deficit Myth, uh, is. She is at Stony Brook, and you know her from the phrase MMT. Right now with us, and to have Mohammed Alarian with us is a great thrill today. He is at Queen's College in Cambridge, and he's interested in the asset allocation of their endowment. That's the campus of Steve Chiverone, head of multi-asset solutions at Federated MS. Steve, this is a lonely bull market. How do you reallocate into the end of the year? Well, you had to get ahead of it a little bit. Um, we were adding over the course of the summer when it was uncomfortable on the idea that we Markets like Fed pauses, um, and they price in soft landings, even if a soft landing doesn't materialize. Because when the Fed pauses, invariably, it's on suspicion they've gone too far, not on confirmation. And so the data that's available to you is a Fed that's no longer hiking and an unemployment rate that's still low. And that's been the case throughout history, and it's the case today. And so finally, with the bond market having broken, we're getting that Fed pause rally, and that can be powerful, Tom. You know, historically, those are nine-month events, and you can see the equity market up 15 20%. And interestingly enough, and, and this is something that's been on our mind, the equity market has hit an all-time high each of the last five times that the Fed has paused. Now, four of those ended in tears, but it still happened either way, and we think this rally has legs. I think the jury on whether or not, you know, how soft this landing is next year is still very much out. But for the time being, we think this rally continues. Steve, what are you looking at to determine um, this whole macro question of has the Fed not just paused, but it's going to start cutting? And can it do so w within a soft landing? What are the key variables yep. you look at? We're calling them the five games of chicken. Um, and it's that corporate refinancing wall 
you're going to have about 60% of corporate debt come due between 24 and 28. So what percentage of that is going to face materially higher rates and what does that do to company earnings? That's number one. Number two, for small businesses, they've already seen their debt repriced because it's variable rate bank debt. So how many quarters of high rates can they survive? On the consumer, uh, negative, or I'm sorry, real income growth has finally turned positive, but how positive does it get and does it allow a consumer to delever again, rebuild savings and continue to spend? $877 billion of bank deposit outflow. What does that do to restrict lending? And then what percentage of the federal debt, a third of which becomes due this year, um, reprices to a significantly higher rate? Those five things, we think if they were to all go perfectly, you'd get this immaculate soft landing. We think that's unlikely. We think what's more likely is a kind of rocky landing where inflation stays stuck at three, rates stay high, there's some slowdown. Um, and it's a kind of malaise. It's a single-digit equity environment with a real risk that something breaks and you get into a classic recession. So it's really between that rocky landing and then a kind of a, a classic recession break that we think is most likely to happen. We're in the rocky landing camp, at least for now. And what do you say to those who say of your five factors, it's one in five? It's all about supply. It's all about who's going to buy all the supply. I think that's big, but where I would focus more acutely is on the nexus between banks and small businesses. Um, the banks, again, if there's $877 billion less of deposits, that's $877 billion less of loans that can be made. And small businesses are reliant on that, and they're not facing a maturity wall. They've already seen it. And so if something's going to break, we would we would look there. So we're spending a lot of time focused there. It also has us bias towards larger cap companies uh, within our asset allocation. Steve, let's get to the quote that shook up this market in the last 24 hours. TK talked about it at the start of the program. It came from the Walmart CEO. We may be managing through a period of deflation in the months to come. Steve, when you heard those words yesterday, what was your response? I think the word deflation is probably a little strong, but I do think that there could be a lot more disinflation than what we've what we've what we're expecting. If you look at the areas of the economy where you've seen disinflation so far, it's goods prices, it's food prices, it's energy prices. It's a lot of stuff that, quite frankly, can be explained by covid normalization. Big interest rate sensitive purchases have not really seen the big deflation that you'd expect. I mean, home prices are still relatively buoyant. Um, go and try to buy a car. It's not exactly a value exercise these days. And so I think as the rate hikes filter through the economy, there is more disinflation in, in, in the pipeline. And I think you could see a Fed at some point in 24 go very quickly from worrying primarily about inflation to worrying very much about growth in the employment markets. And that, that could switch on a dime. And it's something that you know, keeps us in a, in a kind of humble position. Well, Steve, to that point, is, is the same true for investors, just to jump in? You mentioned there yes. that the Federal Reserve can make that switch. I just wonder how quickly investors start to make that switch and whether we can get some divergence between what's happening with bonds and what's happening with stocks. I, I think what you do is you pull up some charts and you look at them historically. You know, unemployment takes stairs down and elevators up. The equity market takes stairs up and elevators down, particularly if you're if you are headed towards a recession. You don't gradually shift your view in the late part of a cycle. It happens very, very swiftly. And that's why as an investor, you have to prepare for that. You start to lengthen duration. You start to upgrade the quality of your equities. We like companies right now that have strong balance sheets, strong cash flow generation, low external financing. And you move in that direction. So that if it does move on a dime, which historically it does, you know, you're not you're not left out in the cold.
Steve, wonderful to get your thoughts. It's good to catch up. Have a good weekend, mate. Steve Chevron there at Federated Hermes. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Stephen Short, principal of the Short Group, saves us now on oil disinflation. Stephen, how does New York Harbor adjust to oil deflation? All the the little itty-bitty things, jet fuel, diesel, distillate, how do they adjust to this collapse in oil? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Tom. We're trying to figure it out uh, as we speak right now. When we look at the spread action between gasoline on the forward curve and inventories, seemingly there is enough oil or enough gasoline in New York Harbor. And New York Harbor, I just want to point out, is important because that is the delivery hub for the mercantiles. Uh, diesel and gasoline contracts. Now, when we look at overall supplies relative to demand, we're looking at about 24 days worth of supply of gasoline. Now, that is normal. That that is that is spot on to uh, the five-year average, and it's slightly above a year ago. Uh, the problem now is that traders are skeptical. They are pricing in a premium on the front end of the curve, which is a clear signal that someone out there is concerned about these supplies, regardless of the fact that we do have all this space worth of supply. The other big issue here is jet fuel. Right now, we don't have enough. Jet fuel stocks are extremely low. And as we look forward to next week, we expect this, or I should say AAA expects this to be one of the busiest travel seasons for Thanksgiving of the past 20-odd years. So when we look at the rising demand, when we look at the spread action, something here is afoot. It doesn't line up that the spreads are saying one thing, i.e., there's not enough supply, regardless of what we're actually seeing in the weekly inventory reports from the EIA. So, Stephen, the Saudis are frustrated with the price action, as you can imagine. I just wonder if they're frustrated enough to change policy again. Do you think they are? Yeah, it's really interesting, and it is really conundrum that, uh, I, to be honest, I, I am perplexed that the market never really 
um, priced in any sort of risk premium with regard to what is happening now in the Middle East. And let's be clear on this. This is a war not between Israel and Hamas, but it is effectively a war between Israel and Iran, given that we're fighting, that is to say, Israel's fighting Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis, all backed by Iran. Now, that is a pretty scary proposition with uh, Iran's ability to halt the flow of oil coming out of the Persian Gulf through the Strait of Hormuz. So, yes, there clearly is a, a, a head scratcher here that we have this huge risk on supply, but the market refuses to price that in. Regardless, we're focusing now on the demand picture. And yes, if you're Saudi Arabia, if you, hey, if you're Texas and you are trying to produce and you're looking at this price action, yeah, you are frustrated at this point. But I want to say here, based on our modeling, we're likely at the bottom of the market right now, uh, given uh, you know, the situation around the globe and, and the, the imbalance now between supply and demand. So, Stephen, do you think that the Saudis will wait this out or do you think the Saudis will be on the phone to the Russians and any other OPEC plus member that's willing to participate in another cut in production? Yeah, I do think that uh, there is a concern that uh, we'll see further cuts. Already, the Saudis, Russia have extended their cuts, uh, voluntary cuts, to the end of the year. But we've seen now in oil prices, uh, unlike the product prices, uh, we've seen an absolute collapse in the front end of the curve. So we've now actually, on economics, we moved into a situation called contango, meaning that prices for near-term delivery are now below that of prices for longer-term delivery. So this is a clear takeaway that uh, right now, from an oil standpoint, fundamentals are extremely weak. And I would suspect that we'll see uh, the chances are going into the quarter uh, OPEC plus either extending the cuts or uh, increasing those cuts into the new year. Stephen Shark, over the arc of Bloomberg surveillance, 20 years, one of the great shocks has been America's success with hydrocarbons. Into the new year, are we energy independent? No, not, not at this point. Now, I want to point out that we were energy uh, independent a few years ago. And keeping in mind, energy independence does not mean we do not have to import a BTU from anywhere around the world. We were a fluid trader in the world. We were the dominant crude oil producer in the world. And we were the swing producer, that is. So for all intents and purposes, we were in energy independent when it comes to hydrocarbons. And that is just a, a, a shout out to, to how well, how efficient the industry has grown over the past 15 to 20 years. But given current policy right now, no, we're not energy independent. And going into the new year, the big risk is that we are playing a zero-sum game. That is to say that we are taking off dispatchable uh, BTUs, natural gas, nukes, coal, faster than we can replace them with renewables. That's not opinion. That is fact. The regulators are telling the government this is so, and yet the government is still uh, going ahead enforcing these retirements where we don't have enough power. So everyone out there, get used to this and get ready. There's going to be a huge jump in volatility over the next two years, a huge jump in pricing for electricity and for other alternative BTUs because we're quite not ready for the transition that the government is forcing upon the industry. Stephen, with a big warning, Stephen Shork there at the Shork Group. 
A lot of happy talk this week. Jeanette Lowe-Strategas weighing in on this meeting between Biden and Xi and saying this, the meeting does not change the trajectory of US-Chinese relations. Tom, the US will continue to push for de-risking or decoupling with China in order to protect its national security interests, and China will continue to push to develop a multipolar world <coughs> against US interests. Jeanette Lowe there. Uh, Join us now from Strategas, uh, Ms. Lowe. Jeanette, I, I look at where we are, and of course, the, the, the major question is what's the next step? What is the next step? Should we look for President Biden to visit China? You know, that's probably um, to somewhat extent unlikely. I think maybe if we look back at last year, we had a meeting between Biden and Xi in November um, of 2022. And, you know, not much occurred out of that. After that, a couple months later, we had that spy balloon flying over Montana, which then ruptured relations again. So I don't necessarily think that there's going to be a, a lot more steps moving forward. It was also very interesting to have the defense secretary at the exact same time in the Philippines talking about about continued coordination while this APEC and the Biden-Xi summit was happening in San Francisco. So I think this is gonna be about trying to lower the temperature, trying to make sure we have continued communications. Um, as you guys have mentioned, having Xi, he wanted to, uh, he's having some domestic issues. This is also a good opportunity for him to kind of have a reset. But ultimately, I think that the two sides are gonna continue on their trajectories, and this is not gonna change the overall path. What it is gonna do is just make things a little bit easier in the short term. We have an election coming up in the US. We don't want to continue tensions with the China. But at the same time, if, if Biden was to be too conciliatory to, towards China, we have a whole lot of hawks in Congress who would then pounce him on that. So, Jeanette, I, I very much agree with your analysis. Can you take it one step further? How easy is it to de-risk without decoupling? Right. And I think that this is part of the issue, too. I mean, you have the U.S. has been trying to make strides to de-risk from China, but it's going to take quite a bit of time. Obviously, we're quite reliant on China for supply chains, for critical minerals, for a whole host of things. And so it's going to be very difficult to actually move those pieces away. And so I think that trend is in place um, and you're going to see it continue over the next couple of years. But that also means that to some extent, you almost need a detente at the high, highest level so that you can build these pieces out from the bottom and ultimately get to that de-risking. I don't think decoupling is probably where the ultimate goal is, but it is really about trying to protect U.S. national security interests and making sure there is reduced dependency on China. And I do think that you are seeing that you know, regardless of the fact that you have to make choices between how you align with the U.S. and China, there is an effort or there is a realization across the globe that having too much dependency on China is not a good thing either. And from China's perspective, de-risking involves building little pipes around the U.S. at the core of the system. How far can they go into building basically an alternative global system? So this is obviously something that they have been working on and they would like to continue to accelerate that. Um, I think the one thing that is important is I, I think the fact that the U.S. is not doing this alone is important that they will actually be more successful in actually trying to at least move supply chains. China's still going to be involved. China's still going to try to you know, work right. with their partners in Asia to get around some of those pieces. Um, but the other thing is that if, if you look at China trying to build this multipolar world, they have been doing that over the course of a couple of years. Um, they're trying to obviously move away from the US dollar. They're trying to get other countries to do the same. But if you are looking at China also being in a place of having um, economic weakness, that also is yeah. not necessarily 
conducive to them actually being the leader of that movement. So there's a lot of things that have to be worked out on both sides to actually reach their ultimately ultimate goal. And I think that's why we're going to kind of see a I don't want to use the term muddle through, but kind of a muddle through scenario right. where they continue down their path. But there there is obviously some need to be conciliatory in the interim. Quickly here, Jeanette, and I've been guilty of this all week. I have failed in taking my eye off Ukraine. Ukraine in this cold December. What will that debate, that study look like? Right. So this is um, the U.S. does not have a lot of military aid left to provide to Ukraine at the moment unless Congress appropriates more funding. And so the spring offensive has not necessarily cr- produced the results that the both sides were looking for. We're going into the winter, which makes it more difficult for there to be progress on the battlefield. I think that you will see an effort in Congress to try to come back from a Thanksgiving holiday and pass Biden's uh, national security supplemental, which would provide aid for Ukraine, as well as Israel and Taiwan and the border. But that is something that they still are trying to find a solution on. They need to figure out whether or not they can add border policy changes in order to get Republican support for that bill. But if we don't get aid to Ukraine over the next couple of weeks, there is probably going to be a, a a a strong hole put into uh, Ukraine's defenses because they really do need more money. You obviously have Europe also supporting them, but Europe has been struggling to get some aid packages passed, some uh, munitions given to them as well. So it's been put on the back burner, but I think you might start to see more discussion over it over the next month in Congress at least. This is the fight we're going to see going into the new year. Jeanette Lowe, a strategist. Jeanette, thank you. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else. You get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.